And so, you know, today is part six of my sermon series on spiritual warfare. I will finish it up next week. Uh, and uh, I sent out that message that my son preached because even though he and I hadn't discussed it, the Holy Spirit uh, really brought him to preach on the very subject that I'm going to speak on today. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why does this happen? Uh, and, you know, my heart aches for the church I see the prayer list. I know every one of you that's suffering, and I'm really affected by that as I pray for you, and, and I ask God's guidance for that. And this message is meant to restore your confidence, to understand that nothing happens by accident, nothing, that he's got you in his hand, and he's controlling it in every way. And so today we're going to sp uh, study the poster child, the poster child of spiritual warfare, okay? It's a hard message to preach, and it's an even harder message to hear. But I believe God has spoken to me, and I pray that he speaks to you as we drill down on this subject, this story of Job. Look, if we have studied the scripture for lessons as to how God wants to handle us to handle spiritual warfare, we will study today the perfect biblical example of a man engaged in such warfare. Now, in John 10, verse 10, and if you have your Bibles, you can turn to that, Jesus says about Satan, the thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what he's about. Now, the story of Job, you see, provides us a behind-the-scenes look at such spiritual warfare. Uh, Satan arrives on the scene to destroy and kill in an effort to prove that Job really does not love God. Uh, it is a gut-wrenching story. As I grew up in the church, this was a hard story for me to get my mind and head around. It's only as I matured as a Christian that I became able to understand it more. Uh, and what we learn here is that the key to success in spiritual warfare is worship. Worship. Even when you don't understand it, even when things surround you, you worship God, you lift God up, and you worship him. Now, Job is a righteous man uh, who feared God and shunned evil. Other passages in the scripture say he was the most righteous man in the world. Uh, and so Satan appeared in heaven, uh, and when he appeared in heaven, he wanted to prove that Job actually did not love God. Uh, and you know, this is, uh, bears out one of the names of Satan, the accuser of the brethren. The accuser of the brethren. Can you imagine? Look at Job chapter 1, verse 9. And you see the charge of Satan to God. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything that he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. In simple terms, you see, Satan wanted to turn God, uh, to turn Job against God. That's what his plan was. Turn Job against God. All right? He believed that pain and misery and suffering uh, would do that. And so he sought permission 
from sovereign God uh, to do this, uh, to allow him to steal, to kill, and destroy. Now, the rest of chapter 1 in Job uh, features a hit list of disasters. That's the only way I can say it. Now, Job loses everything at once. He loses his wealth. He loses his possessions. He loses his property. In fact, he even loses his children. And so how does he respond in the face of this calamitous disaster? He responds by worshiping God, even though he doesn't understand that he worships God. Look at Job 1, verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. Uh, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. You know, I had a partner uh, when I was practicing law that whenever we would come across a very difficult case and it would go against us, uh, and we would be in the conference room, he would come in with the Bible and he would read that verse. And let me tell you, when you're low and you see what Job put up with, all of a sudden you're not as low as you thought you were. Am I right? Worse. Well, how can it be? Chapter 2, things get even worse. Well, how can it get worse? Well, Satan now gives Job painful sores all over his body. Even Job's wife gives up, encouraging Job to, quote, curse God and die. you got to love Job's wife. <laughs> now, there's some theologians that believe that she was so irked because he had failed to buy her a Valentine's Day card. <laughs> you know, it's possible, but this lady really was difficult. And I'd say if you're married to somebody like this, we have to pray extra hard for you. I had a godly man in one of the churches I was in when I was in New Jersey, godly man. And whenever he would have an argument with his wife, he would finish up with the argument with these words, ah, Job's wife. There's nothing to say after that. There's nothing to say after that. Job's wife. Uh, and so he will not curse God. He will not curse God because he is a righteous man, because he worships the God of the universe. So what happens next? Job's friends arrive. Oh, yes. Thank God for our friends. <laughs> and unfortunately, these are not godly friends. And they attempt to help Job by explaining that all the bad things that have happened to him have happened because he committed some great sin. Now, this brings a point that's important to me in theology, and that is be wary of shared ignorance. Are you with me? Be wary of sitting around a table and having some people espouse some theological truths they think are accurate, which in fact are not, and they drag you down. He wasn't suffering because he committed some sin. He, was, he had become the poster child for spiritual warfare. He had become the warrior for God to show in time immemorial what we need to do when we suffer, when God has called us to some great effort. Uh, and so Job Thank God refuses to accept their reasoning. And so now Job wants an explanation from God. 
He wants to hear from God. What are you doing to me? Why am I suffering like this? What is this about? Well, be wary of what you ask for. Because God then speaks to Job out of a storm. And you'll find this uh, in uh, Job uh, chapter 42, uh, beginning in verse 6. Actually, beginning in verse 1. Who is this that obscures my plans, said God, with words without knowledge, that is shared ignorance? Who is this? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its fittings, footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. There it is. I'm God. You're not. What makes you think that you know why I do what I do? That's God. That's God. And Job realizes that his desire to fully understand the mind of God is futile. We can never really understand the mind of God. All right? And so in Job 42, verse 6, he repents. Therefore, he says, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He realized he had no place to demand anything of God who had created him. Uh, And so Job now bows before God in submission, and God gives Job a great blessing as a gift. And you see this in Job 42, verse 12. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a thousand yoke of oxen, and a thousand donkeys. Oh, my. That's the blessing of God. Clearly, he is now, again, the wealthiest man in the world because God has blessed him, because he had come to understand that he bows before the throne. Even though he doesn't understand God, he worships him. And I want to say this is important for all of you here in this church, who I ache for your pains and your suffering and your persecution, and all the difficulties that you go through. But I want to assure you of this. You are a child of God. He holds you in his hand. Nothing will come your way that is not within his will. Count on it. Count on it in every possible way. The lesson here is that Satan will do anything to pull God's people uh, away from God. That's what he wants to do. He will tempt. He will reward. He will exploit. He will accuse. He will manipulate, and he will lie. Uh, And if you want to work against Satan, against what he does, uh, if you want to fight spiritual warfare successfully uh, and ensure that he does not win, then you have a simple job to do. Get on your knees and worship God. Bow to God. Worship him in every way. Acknowledge 
who he is. No matter what happens, no matter what the difficulties, no matter what the pains and suffering, worship God, your creator. Worshiping God, worshiping God despite pain and suffering uh, may sound like a simple thing, but it's not. It's not. It's hard. It's hard. Even as you go through grief and trauma and loss, however, you know that it is not easy or not natural. And so by the grace of God, you ask him to help you. Now, in this story about Job, uh, God says to Satan, where have you come from? And I love this answer. Where have you come from? The devil responds, I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. That's Job chapter 1, verse 7. I'm patrolling the earth. I'm looking around for who's available to be tempted. For the weak, I'm looking for that. Uh, And this is important to understand as we engage in spiritual warfare. Satan never rests. When he is defeated, he just circles back and starts all over again. All right? He doesn't quit. He is a lion constantly looking for his prey. Now, Satan walks to and fro up and down, constantly sizing things up. And here's his mindset. He says, there's a Christian who isolates himself from other Christians. Maybe I'll go after him, all right? Because he's not part of the church. He's not part of an affirming group of people. He's walking by himself. I'll go after him. Or there's someone else filled with pride and arrogance. Oh, I can bring him down that arrogant, prideful man, he's always sizing us up looking for a weakness, always looking for a vulnerability of some kind. He is patrolling the world, constantly looking for this. But this brings us to another important spiritual truth. Despite his heartless, wicked agenda, Satan still has to ask permission before he can touch a child of God. Let's understand this. He doesn't have to ask permission of those people that are not committed to God, those people that have not given their hearts to God. But if you are a child of God, all right, God has put a protective hedge around you and is with you, and so he asks to have, he has to ask permission. You can find evidence for this in Scripture, uh, even at the point where the demoniac was left by, the, by those demons that, that had infested his life. And when they left, they asked Jesus in Mark chapter 5, verse 11, could they go into a herd of pigs? They needed the permission from Jesus. Could we go into a herd of pigs? And they did. And over a thousand pigs went to their death filled with those demons. Uh, because God has placed limits on Satan and on his activities. God knows your breaking point. And he will never give us more than we can take. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Uh, and Paul writes this, and who really knew more about pain and suffering than our brother Paul? And here he writes these crucial words. No temptation has ever overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can do it. 
you can endure it. There is always a way out. There is always a back door. The enemy may harass you. He may surround you, but he can never exceed what God in his grace and wisdom has allowed in your life. On another occasion, Satan came to tempt uh, and permission to assault Simon Peter. And he came and he asked for permission. And Jesus spoke about this in Luke 22, verse 31. This bears out my point. Uh, and so Jesus turns to Simon and says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Immediately aware of Satan's designs, Jesus warned Peter, assuring him, I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. This is critically important as well. Jesus is praying for you right now. The Bible is clear about that. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He's praying for you. Can you imagine? God, the Son of God, is praying for you. He is our advocate, and he speaks in your defense when the evil one tries to slander you before the sovereign God. God has placed a hedge around you, an impregnable fortress uh, that Satan and his demons cannot penetrate. Whatever comes your way then must have God's permission. Uh, just as God protected Job, he will protect you. This is important for you to understand. This is a critical part of our understanding of spiritual warfare. You can approach God anytime based on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ at the cross and the blood that he shed for you on the cross. Uh, it has never been about worthiness. And let's put that to rest right now. Don't think you have to be worthy to approach the God, God or cross. Don't think about that. You're not experiencing what you're experiencing experience because of maybe some failure in your life. God doesn't work that way. You are worthy in the sight of God because you're attached to the body of Christ. Can I get an amen on that? Let's understand that. All right. God is extending his grace to you because you've committed yourself to him. And when it comes to that, how much do we really, truly understand God's grace through Christ? Uh, can we even ever begin to wrap our minds about that concept? Look at Psalm 103, verse 11. Psalm 103, verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That's your God. All right, that's your God when you put your heart with him. The book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4, 16 speaks also boldly on this issue. It says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There it is. I worship you, God. I bow before your throne. I don't understand what's happening to me, but I know I'm within your will. And if this is what you have decreed for me, Father, I accept it and I worship you. This is how we successfully approach spiritual warfare. We do not repudiate God. We do not curse God. We do not displace God, but we bow before God in every way. Now, Satan does not want you to know 
these things. He does not want you to think about verses like that. Instead, he will whisper in your ear, and he's very good at this, who do you think you are? You see, you have committed that sin one too many times. You keep sinning and doing the same things, and you think you can go back to God after you have done that. And so he wants you to be weighed down in guilt and despair and not to go to God. You can't possibly go to God. Uh, and, and this is his plan. Everything in Satan wants to keep you from the cross. That's his plan. Uh, where Jesus paid the debt forever for your sins. It was the cross that sealed Satan's doom. And he does not want you anywhere near it. He knows you're saved, but he wants to keep you from doing the work of God. He doesn't want you doing ministry. He wants you to sit in a place where you let others move forward. This is his plan. Now look even at the example of Judas Iscariot. If Judas had asked and sought forgiveness for his treachery, do you have any doubt that Jesus would have forgiven him? Of course not. And here is why, and I'll prove it. When Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane and Judas came with the temple guard to arrest him, in Matthew 26, verse 50, Jesus made this statement. Friend, why have you come? Friend, why have you come? He knew why he was there, and yet even in that language, he was speaking to Judas to give him another chance. Uh, he had already identified him as the betrayer. Uh, he knew that. And he had told him to go and do what he had to do quickly. Jesus had said that. But I believe that here, in this final moment, uh, Jesus was offering to Judas one last opportunity to repent. But Judas listened to the wrong voice. You understand? He listened to the wrong voice. He listened to the voice of guilt. And, and he took his own life. What a sad ending to a sad story. What about Peter? What about Peter after he had denied the Lord? Uh, and then had direct eye contact with Jesus. Uh, he went out and wept bitterly. Of course he wept bitterly. He couldn't believe the guy who said, I will never betray you. I will never leave you. I will be there to the end no matter what else happens. And yet he failed. He failed. And so what happened? Here is the difference. He came back to Jesus. That's the difference. He came back. Peter returned to Christ, and he was forgiven and restored and even offered an even wider ministry. Uh, it's such a poignant thing to understand. This is an important lesson for you to remember about spiritual warfare. If you fail the Lord, and you will, come back to him. You understand? Come back to him. Seek repentance. Seek confession. Bow before him, and he will accept you. Uh, when Jesus revealed to Peter that Satan had sought to sift him as wheat, uh, he added, but I've prayed for you, Peter. I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail and that you will strengthen others. That's the essence of who Christ is. That's the essence of what spiritual warfare is. Come back to me. Yes, you will fall. Yes, you will trip up, but come back to me. You need to remember, and this is key, that your defense against the accusations 
of the devil is the son of God himself. That's your defense. Jesus Christ is your defense, who intercedes for you on an everyday basis before the throne of God. He's praying for you right now. He represents you right now. He defends you right now. Look at Romans 8, verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for you. No one has the authority to condemn you. No one can accuse you. Don't fall prey to Satan who puts these ideas in your mind or even may surround you with so-called friends who will expound on shared ignorance. I repudiate that for you, all right? Go back to the Bible and read the Bible. No one has the authority to condemn you. God has fully justified you. All right? He's fully justified you in every way, and he sits there at the right hand of God right now, interceding for you. This is our Jesus. This is our Savior. He is the one who saves us, who justifies us, who defends us, who preserves us. Yes, we believe and affirm these things. He is a faithful, merciful God filled with loving kindness, and it's important that you understand this. And so, even as we engage in spiritual warfare, we need to understand that God's primary objective is not for you to have a nice day. Ooh, John, I'm shocked to hear this. You mean his, his primary objective is that I don't have a nice day? No, no, no. You see, his primary objective is that your life be glorified, and represent him. His ultimate goal should not be happiness, but holiness. That's his goal. He wants you to be holy. And so here's the thing. The good news is as you are holy, you will become happy. And all I can say to you in my life is I look back at my life and I recognize now that I have become most happy when I'm serving God, when I'm bowing to him, when I've put myself fully at his control, where every day of my life is about him uh, and serving you and serving the church. I have never experienced more fundamental happiness in my life, ever. And as I get older, I find that I'm happier every day. Why? Because I'm walking with him. You understand? I'm not pursuing happiness. I'm not pursuing the baubles of this world. Instead, I'm pursuing walking with him. And so being holy, and let me tell you to buckle down on this, being holy means that you will have to go through some trials, some hardship, and some pain, and some suffering. Yeah, that's what happens. It simply comes with the territory because he's perfecting you, because he's using you, because he intends to make you a poster child just like he did with Job so that all your friends and neighbors will look at you and say, what an amazing woman. Look at the suffering that she has, and yet she continues to serve God. She never complains. She walks with God. 
And so this becomes important. And so now, if someone suggests to you that the suffering that you are enduring or the sickness that you are enduring uh, is some kind of hardship as a result of your sin, I repudiate it. You understand? It's not your sin. God has saved you, and he's called you to a higher purpose. That false teaching started way back with the book of Job, the oldest book of the Bible. And there his so-called pals shared their, their shared uh, ignorance, all right? Their shared ignorance, and gave him some theological truths that were not theological truths. Job never blamed God. He never blamed God. Uh, and so in all the horrific losses that he suffered, uh, you understand this. Whatever it was, he still lifted up God and praised God and worshiped God. Even as he lost seven sons and three daughters, wiped out in a moment, did Job curse God? Not once. As he said in Job 1, verse 21, the Lord gave me everything I had, and they were his to take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What a giant. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gave it all to me. If he wants it back, it's his to take back. Uh, and so yet as Job was not finished, and as he attacked, Satan was not finished with Job, as he attacked Job's body with sores, he turned to his wife for support. You know, if you can't turn to your wife for support, who can you turn to? And I love his wife. She's, she winds up being one of the more poignant people in the Bible. His wife said to him, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. Curse God and die, Job 2, verse 9. Uh, and Job, how did Job reply? <laughs> how would we reply? Probably we'd get in our car and drive right through the garage and try to knock her down. <laughs> and God would understand that. But look what, look, look what Job says. Look what Job says. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? This man is amazing. That's why God put this book in the Bible. This is your guide to how God wants you to lead a life of suffering and pain involved in spiritual warfare. And you're all going to experience it. In fact, most of you in this church are old enough that you've already experienced it multiple times. I know that you have, all right? But there's a lesson here. So we have much to learn from this story of Job. In his letter to the church, the apostle James wrote in James chapter 5, <clears throat> verse 11, as you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. There's the key word, persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. The key word here is perseverance. Yes, you're going to go through heartaches. Yes, you're going to go through hard times, but persevere. Keep your eye on the cross. It's not a matter of time when something will happen. It's a matter of when. Understand that. And so we understand through Job that this is how God wants us to engage in spiritual uh, warfare. Never forget that God is in control of all of the circumstances that surround your life. He's in control. You gave him your life. You gave him your life, and so he sees you. Your suffering has not escaped your notice. I want you to know that, that there are many in this church right now that are suffering. God sees your suffering. 
all right? He sees your suffering, and it's not escaped his notice. And so the question becomes, if he is in control, as he is, why does he allow these hurtful things to happen to me and to people I love, which was why I wanted as a predicate for this message for you to see my son's message that he delivered last Sunday. How about the Holy Spirit putting these two messages back to back? That's God, all right? And so here's the thing. First, suffering makes you strong. Look at James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. He wants you to be strong, and it is through these sufferings that you go through that you're going to be strengthened. It's steel. Steel becomes steel when it's put into the fire. You understand? Not when it's just left out in the dirt. Second, suffering can bring God glory, and I can give you a personal testimony about this. When I see you walk into church and I know what you're going through, you preach to me greater than any sermon that I've ever heard. I know what you're going through. I know the pain that you're going through, and yet God has given you the grace to walk into church, to come here on Sunday, and not to complain, but to bow before his throne. You're preaching to me like no preacher ever has. You are bringing God glory. You understand? You're bringing God glory even through these sufferings. Uh, and God is strengthening you, and God wants you to bless the world. That's his point, that you will bless others. What a witness to the world. That's why when you go to the hospitals and walk down the halls, and you come into a believer's room, even if they're dying, the light and joy that comes out is amazing. You take a further walk down the hall, someone that's not a believer, and there's darkness. There's no hope. You understand? There's no hope because they don't let the light of the world into their heart. It is a powerful testimony, ladies and gentlemen, when a believer can praise God while suffering. Praise God while suffering. Remember the story of Paul and Silas put into that jail, jailed for doing nothing but preaching, put in stocks, and their stocks are spreading their legs so that that alone was painful. Uh, and there they are being whipped and in stocks. And at midnight, what are they doing? They're singing. They're singing praises to God. Look at Acts chapter 16, verse 25. At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. You think they heard that message? Who are these two guys? What do they have going on? How can they sing? How can they praise God when they're suffering like this? This is what God wants you to do. Uh, and the Lord opened that door, and the jailer came in, saw them, and what did he say? What, brothers, what must I do to be saved? Do you understand? That's the message. What must I do to be saved? Because the, the evidence of their life was that message. What an incredibly powerful message. The way you handle suffering in your life can bring great glory to God. And that's one of the byproducts of spiritual warfare. Look, there are important lessons for us as we engage in spiritual warfare. Paul, who had serious issues with suffering and pain, speaks to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, 
and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through God. There it is. Even as you're suffering and God is giving you comfort and allowing you to give that message to others, the world sees, and God has called you to deliver that message of hope to the world. That's why you've been chosen. That's why he selected you. That's why you are engaged in spiritual warfare. This is not a meaningless walk. It is a walk filled with deep, profound meaning in your life. All right? So Job's experience doesn't necessarily teach us precisely why the righteous suffer. That's within the mind and plan of God. I would never presume to speak to God's mind. It is his prerogative, but we bow before his throne. But what it does teach us, you see, is what the righteous do when they suffer. When the righteous suffer, what do they do? They worship. They bow. They submit. Uh, and so Job bowed despite all the pain, despite all the loss. Uh, and God wants you to be encouraged with the life of Job. And I want each of you to really think about this and pray about this and incorporate this into your life so that even as you suffer, even as you have pain, that God will give you the insight to know he is in control. Amen, church? Amen. Let's bow. Lord, I thank you for this message. Lord, this is a hard message. But Lord, I believe that you have, through the Holy Spirit, touched our hearts as we recognize the call on our life. Yes, Father, even in the dark times of life, we bow and worship you. We recognize we can't come to you and demand answers, but instead, Lord, we know that you love us, that you died for us, that you walk with us, that you pray with us, that you defend us every moment of the day, and that is our confidence. Lift our people up. Give them confidence to understand they don't walk alone. Give them confidence to know that even as they suffer issues of health, even as their life drips away, that you, Father, are in control and that you have called us to a greater good as we put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen, church. Amen.